All right. Good, good morning, everybody. Uh, let me flip this on. Hey, so uh, we're, like Greg said, we're starting a new series in the book of Isaiah. And I'm just waiting for a second for something to pop up on the screen. There we go, because I wanted to skip it. I, wanted to, I didn't want anyone to see it because I don't want to talk about it. So uh, I, I want to spend more time doing other things. So I needed that thing to skip right away. Okay, so uh, Isaiah, it's a big series. We'll be here all the way to the new year. And briefly as an introduction, this is the way it's functioning. Um, Isaiah, think of Isaiah, prophet of doom, as the name of like the epic saga, if you will. So think Star Wars is the name of the epic saga, but then it's broken down into like individual parts. There's like the trilogy, episode four, five, and six, and in grand total, there's, there's six Star Wars movies, um, right? There's, you don't count those... Yeah, she's, she's got it down. Uh, the, I mean, there, there's the non-canonical, non-authoritative works, episode one, two, and three, that it's sort of like if you're into Star Wars, you can watch those to gain some insights, but they're really not a part of Star Wars. So Isaiah, prophet of doom, is the name of the epic saga that's going place in 12 weeks, and those 12 weeks will be split into three portions, three, three sections, so think of it like a trilogy, and the first part of the trilogy is Isaiah, Heirs of Treason, then Isaiah, Rise of the Day Star, and then as we enter into Christmas, Isaiah, The War of the Lamb, and those titles will make sense as we track through those, so stick with it, and a lot of the, the clarity will come. Now, what I'd like to do today is sh- not even open up the book of Isaiah, not even touch it. I'm going to touch the book of Isaiah. What we want to do today is look at why read Isaiah? Why is the book of Isaiah so incredibly important, and why do we need to know it? So start off with a question, and if you came to our Isaiah uh, dessert preview night, you're not allowed to answer this question, so just, just don't. You're not allowed to. What do you think are the top three most quoted books of the Old Testament by New Testament authors. So what do the New Testament authors, the New Testament books of the Bible, what books of the Old Testament do they quote the most? Top three, what do you think? I heard Proverbs, Psalms. Okay, someone said Isaiah. Now, you got to pick Isaiah because it would be a really bad uh, sermon introduction if Isaiah wasn't at least like in the top three. So yes, Isaiah, and then I heard someone say Psalms and Proverbs. Proverbs, no, but the Psalms, yes. Now one other one. Deuteronomy. Man, did you cheat? Oh, come on, man. You Google. Oh, man, you got that on your Samsung phone. I'm surprised even it was able to download that information that fast, man. Come on, man. <laughs> We, we need you to, we need to mic you up during service because it's not fair. Like speaker, when you get the mic, it's an unfair advantage. And he probably had a good comeback line, but he wasn't able to say it. And it just ends with, with me with the line. And I, you know, he's a quick-witted guy. He, I, I know he probably has a comeback, but um, yeah, you really Googled it that quickly? Okay. So Deuteronomy, that's, that's the secret punchline because no one gets Deuteronomy. I mean, it's like, Deuteronomy, what? Okay. You got, you, you would have had Deuteronomy? Okay. Okay, so it's Isaiah, Psalms, and Deuteronomy. So here's the point. 
The biblical authors in the New Testament, they, they speak the language of the Old Testament, and in particular, they speak the language of Isaiah, Deuteronomy, and the Psalms. And I'm choosing my words carefully here. I, I really mean they speak the language of the Old Testament. The New Testament authors are saturating and soaking themselves in the Old Testament. And whenever you do that with any piece of literature, whenever you do that with a movie, a song, you begin to speak the internal language of that work or activity. So, for example, um, I'm not going to name the movie, and only like probably like 10 people know this, and the rest of you will just think I'm so stupid. But let's say you've watched one particular movie again and again and again, and it's dinner time, and mom brings a plate of broccoli over to dad, and dad says, get that corn out of my face. Just like that, okay? Those are the 10 people, everyone else, it doesn't make sense. So that's a direct quote from one of the greatest comic masterpieces in, in you know, human history, Nacho Libre. And Nacho Libre, so... You're offering broccoli, but the dad says, get the corn out of my face, but the mom doesn't respond back with like, it's broccoli, dear. You've watched the movie enough that you know the internal language of, of that movie. Like, if someone asks for the Lord's cheeps, you know those are tortilla chips. You're not going to bring like, like barbecue potato chips. There's an internal language to that. Um, likewise, I had uh, my father-in-law help me understand this, Jerry, because I've had this happen to me, and it's, it's kind of weird, and it, does, it doesn't make sense if you're on the outside, but for, there, I know there's probably people in here who really like the, the Monty Python movies, and there's like this scene, it, it's so weird, it, the Knights of Knee, or some, yes, okay, whoever made the noise, was that you again, you made the noise, okay, make the noise really loud for the entire church to hear, knee, exactly, that's it, now, if you get some, some Monty Python fans in a room, they all start doing it like back and forth for everything and they're cracking themselves up. Just laughing. And if you're on the outside going, what is wrong with you guys? Uh, if you are a graphic designer, there, was there another line from it? See, this is why you need a mic. This is why you need a mic. Now, See, now some of you think that's funny. I don't. I, I just, it's, it's, I don't get it. I don't get it. So it doesn't just play, take place with a movie. It can happen with um, activity. So if you're a graphic designer and someone asks, oh, what font are we going to use on this new work? And you say, oh, how about papyrus and make sure there's no kerning. Okay. Now, if you're a graphic designer, you're a part of that community, you, you, you know that that's sarcasm because graphic designers universally hate uh, papyrus. They, they hate that font. They hate Comic Sans. They hate papyrus. They just hate it. And kerning has to do with spacing between letters. So to remove all spacing would be, would be ugly. You need space between the letters. But you wouldn't get that if you weren't a part of that internal community, that internal language. If someone plays lots of video games, and in particular they play Call of Duty a lot, you'll hear somebody say something along the lines of, um, my KD in TDM is really low, but I never try hard. I just troll the noobs. Now, most of you have no, that was, that's English. I'm not speaking another language. That was English. It's English. But in a sense, it is another language, right? Because the community builds an internal language and you have to enter into it and, and begin to know that in order to, to play that game. Like, if you're playing Call of Duty and you don't know the, the terms and stuff, trust me, the community will turn on you. They'll be making fun of you and they will tell you things I can never repeat in church. It's like... 
anyone who thinks society is progressing, you just listen to the way people talk online. Not only in video games, in anything. When you could hide behind a computer screen, the worst comes out. Okay, so the biblical authors, the people who write the New Testament, they speak in the language of the Old Testament, and in particular, they speak in the language of Isaiah, Deuteronomy, and Psalms. The gospel writers, the the people who wrote the first biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, they big time speak in the language of Isaiah. And so in order to, to kind of like truly understand and be able to read your Bible, you have to begin to, to learn that language. Many times Christians, and well-meaning, will, will, someone becomes a new Christian, and you, you hand them a Bible and you say, hey, you want to grow in your relationship with God? Just, just read your Bible more. Read it every day. And then someone with good intention picks up their Bible and tries to, to read it. And some of you know exactly what I'm about to say. You start reading it and you go, I don't understand any of this. And if the person that got you the Bible, if you were lucky, they at least helped you find like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to start off in. Because even those are difficult, but those are easier. Like if you just got it without direction, you open up to Genesis and you make it to Genesis 12, maybe. And it's not making sense. But if you were really righteous, you'd get to like Leviticus. And then that's where you stop. Unless you're like a part of the righteous remnant sealed before eternity, saved unto God. You actually got through Leviticus without any help. You just, oh, I love it. Deuteronomy is awesome. This is the best. It's the best. Internal language. What we want to do as a church is not just teach the Bible or teach things about the Bible, although that's important and we need to do that. We want to help you be able to read your Bibles better. Um, I mean, the whole Protestant Reformation, by the way, we're going on years 500 of that. This is the year. 500 years of Protestant Reformation was built upon uh, an idea that it's good for people to be able to to read the, the Bible independently by themselves. Now, people have been doing that for the last 2,000 years, but it was kind of like this resurgence historically of of when that was taking place. The problem is, it can be incredibly difficult if you're not equipped with with tools to do those types of things. It could be incredibly difficult. And so, as we go through this, we want to, to help you learn the language of Isaiah, learn the language that the New Testament is speaking in. So, let's briefly do that. I want to show you four occurrences, four, four times where each one of the Gospels begin their story about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but begin by speaking um, the language of Isaiah. Here's Mark's account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, chapter 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Okay, we could spend like the the, the whole whole week, the whole month here just in this text, but briefly. The beginning. If If you're saturated in the Old Testament, you realize that both John and Mark begin their gospel accounts by talking about the beginning. And that's not a direct quote, but it's an allusion to the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God creates the heavens 
and the earth. And so what the New Testament authors are trying to do is they're saying there is a new beginning. They would call it a new creation. Something new is going to take place. This is the beginning of the gospel. Gospel here word is Greek, euangelion. We've talked about this in the past, but the context for gospel in the Roman world was Caesar, the king of Rome, being victorious, and he would send out a herald or a messenger saying, Caesar is victorious in battle. This is the good news of Caesar, and this is what it means for you. Its Jewish context is different, though. Its Jewish context is found in the book of Isaiah, and that's going to be the right answer for 98% of the rest of the questions in here. I was like, just say Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah chapter 40, where the prophet is told, speak good news to Zion, proclaim the good news to Zion. The king is going to return. There is a hope for Israel. So this is the beginning, the new creation, the brand new start of the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I said this before, but again, worth repeating. Jesus Christ is not a first and last name. Jesus is a name. Christ is a title. Christ is Mashiach in Hebrew, the anointed one, the king. It's not a last name. So it's not like when Mary and Joseph moved to Nazareth, you know, one of their neighbors said, oh, we're having the Christ over for dinner tonight. You know, Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, and their little lad, Jesus Christ. No, it's, a, it's this title. And so we're talking about the beginning of the good news that Isaiah talked about of who? Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's Mashiach, the anointed one, the son of God. Now, when you hear the phrase son of God, most of us immediately think in biological terms. Like, I'm a dad and I have, I have a daughter and I and a son, Isaac. I'm thinking in biological categories. But that, that's, that's not the way someone soaked and saturated in Old Testament literature would think. Who in the Old Testament is the son of God? Particularly think the book of Exodus and the book of Isaiah. This is a tough one. Only one person has got it right in all the services so far. Abraham is really close. Pretty much the idea is in Abraham. The son of God is Israel as a people group, as an ethnic group. In the book of Exodus, God tells Israel, you are my firstborn son. Yes, Jesus is the son of the father. That is true. But in the Old Testament... The Son of God is national, corporate, ethnic Israel. So what is Jesus doing, and what are the biblical authors claiming about Jesus? They are saying in one way that Jesus is somehow, as an individual, the embodiment of ethnic, national, corporate Israel. In other words, what Israel was supposed to do, what Israel was designed to do, what their mission and vocation was, Jesus is taking that up upon himself, and he will do for Israel what Israel could not do for itself, namely their, their mission, design, and vocation. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, we're not going to dig in deep into what that text actually means, but here's the main point. In verse 1, Mark uses all the language of the Old Testament. 
and he assumes you kind of know what he's talking about. And then he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and he assumes that you know what the prophet Isaiah, who the prophet Isaiah is. There's no hyperlink to like a Wikipedia article where it's like, oh, this is the prophet Isaiah. You know, he's been dead for a few hundred years. Legend and tradition says he was sawed in half. That's true, by the way. We don't know if that's true, but the legend and tradition says that he was sawed in half. That's why people, you know, whenever like people want to be like, they think they're prophets or they, they have special words from God and stuff, it's like, you do know most of the time the prophets, they die bad deaths. You don't, you don't want to be one. Like when you read the Bible, someone starts hearing the voice of God, like it's like Jonah, nah, nah, don't want to do it, not going to happen. I know how this ends. I end up getting eaten by a big fish. Not going to happen. So he just assumes this knowledge of the prophet Isaiah. We'll get into what he quotes about week seven or eight, but this is the assumption. You just kind of, this is the language you should know. Later, as Jesus enters into his adult uh, years in ministry, Mark chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus is teaching in parables these stories and people having a hard time understanding what the, they mean. So the disciples want to wait till he's in private and they're going to ask him like, Jesus, dude, what are you saying in these parables? Mark four ten, And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you who has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What is this a direct quote from? Yeah, even if you didn't know that, it's Isaiah. Jesus is making a parallel between what he is doing and what the prophet Isaiah did. This is quoted Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to understand Jesus' mission, his role, his vocation, what he's supposed to be doing, he's telling you, I'm doing the same thing that Isaiah was doing several hundred years ago. Let's jump to another gospel account. This is... Um, the beginning, again, all the stories of Jesus' birth. Matthew begins with the genealogy, though, and then it tells how uh, God sends an angel, tells Mary, uh, you're going you're gonna to conceive. You're going to uh, conceive even though you are a virgin. Joseph finds out, and of course, Joseph, being a man of faith, just believes his, his, his girlfriend that basically, even though they've never had sex, she's miraculously pregnant with the Son of God. Sure, you didn't cheat on me. I believe you. No, of course not. If, if your girlfriend, whom you've never had sex with, says, I haven't cheated on you, but I'm pregnant, you're going to need an angel from God to believe that story. That's what happens. And God does that because Joseph's a God-fearing man, but he's not crazy. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Go to verse 22. This is crazy. Matthew just says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He doesn't even tell you who it was. He just assumes you know what he's talking about. And which prophet is, is he quoting? No, Hezekiah. No, I'm just, no, it's Isaiah, of course. Hezekiah, even a prophet. 
Not even a prophet. But yeah, it's Isaiah. And it's this, this passage, Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew phrase, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. God is with us. Just quotes it. This is how Luke's biography of the life of Jesus starts. Luke has three uh, poems or songs that kind of circle around the, the story of the birth of Jesus. One is by Mary, one is by Zachariah, and one's by a guy named Simeon. We don't have time to look at all three. Just want to look at Simeon's kind of song or poetry that's given upon the birth of Jesus. But this is, this is how Luke sets this up. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now something's going on in this text that I never noticed, and a friend of professor pointed this out in a class. His name's Tim Mackey. Uh, some of you have seen the, those awesome cartoons, uh, Bible Project cartoons. He's the kind of mastermind behind those. But he pointed out something that I always miss, and he goes, there's something that the author is trying to draw your attention to in this text, um, but because you just kind of read it so fast, you miss it. But I'm going to read it again and look for anything that, like, is, is unique or different. Or Think about what is Luke wanting me to see here? And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, anything immediately kind of go like, what? I'll show you something. There is like this ridiculous repetition that's going to take place in this passage. It's right here, and it'll appear in a couple verses later. But the author, Luke, repeats the law of Moses. Now look, read it again. It's super redundant. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of Moses. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of Moses. Luke wants you to see that Mary and Joseph are God-fearing, God-honoring, Torah-observant Jews. When you read the word law of Moses, 98% of the time in the New Testament, the law of Moses or the law of the Lord is not like do not murder, like morality in the abstract. It's talking about the law the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and there's roughly, give or take, 613 rules, commands, and statutes that's given for Israel to live by. So Mary and Joseph are Torah-observant Jews. They live and breathe the Old Testament law. There's also something Luke wants you to see that you have to speak the language of the Old Testament to see. It says that they are to offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, in Leviticus 12, language of the Old Testament, it tells us that if you can't afford the, like, the real sacrifice that you're supposed to give, if you're super poor, you can't afford the real sacrifice, and God doesn't hold you being poor against you, he lets you do the poor person's sacrifice, and the poor person's sacrifice is two young pigeons. It's like no one can, because no, even, even if you're really poor, you can afford p- 
pigeons, because no one even cares about pigeons. You can steal pigeons from your neighbors. Like, who likes pigeons? You can steal some pigeons from your neighbor. They won't even notice. Pigeons are on, like, the bottom of the chain. I know there's probably, like, a pigeon lover here at the church that's going to write me an email just upset. You just don't understand pigeons. No, it's in the Bible. They're at the bottom. Luke wants you to know Mary and Joseph are God-fearing, God-honoring, poor Jews who are Torah observant. And it's to this couple, this holy and set-apart couple, that God brings Messiah through. Goes on. Now there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this was this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Interesting note, just um, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation, uh, the Greek word here is paraklesis. And that same word will be used to describe, uh, will be used to describe someone else later in the Bible. Um, the Holy Spirit is the parakletos. And so, although this isn't necessarily the meaning of what's taking place in Luke's account, there's this idea that the people of Israel are waiting for this consolation, this comfort to come, and it, it, the idea is that it's a thing or a feeling, but ultimately, the true comfort, the true consolation, the true peace is not found in a feeling or a thing, but in a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. So Simeon's been waiting for a long time to see the consolation of Israel, And it says, he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him him up in his arms and blessed God and said, dot, dot, dot. So I want to pause. You got to have an image in your mind, a picture. You have to picture Simeon. He He is an old man. He's at the end of his days, and he knows it. And some point in his life, God told him, you will see the Messiah. You will see the consolation of Israel. You will see the deliverer. And he's been praying and waiting. God, I'm going to stand true to your promise. You will not let me see death before I see the deliverer. And then finally, on this one particular day, God whispers to him, this is it. This is the boy. And so he grabs baby Jesus and he takes him in his arm and he says these powerful words. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. His first line in the the quotations, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Interesting. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. So picture the old man holding the boy and he's saying, now I've seen the salvation, Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation, that you have prepared in the presence for all peoples. Where does this idea come from? A light for revelation to the Gentiles. What's he quoting here? Picture there's a dead horse right here and we're just beating the dead horse to prove a point right here. It's right here. You've got it, right? He's quoting Isaiah. He's been waiting his whole life to see the Messiah, and when he sees the Messiah, what are the things that flow off of his lips? It's the promises in the book of Isaiah. A light, not just for Jewish people, but for Gentiles. Gentile, quickly defined as anyone that's not Jewish. 
All the nations have been waiting for this. And this is for the glory of your people, Israel. Okay, last one. The horse got to get kicked one more time. This is a powerful one. Jesus is an adult in the Gospel of Luke, and he goes to the synagogue, and it's his turn to read. There's a tradition that you have to understand. In Jesus' day, in the synagogue system, there was a reading plan. And the reading plan, it was, it was liturgical. It, you would read portions of Scripture, different portions, every time you went to synagogue, and someone else had a turn. Every time, someone else would, would read the Scripture. So it wasn't just one person always reading the Scriptures. Every single person would have a turn on a particular day at the synagogue to read the reading plan. On this day, on this Sabbath in the synagogue, it's Jesus' turn to read. And what do you think the text for the day was? And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up and read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. It's Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you can almost feel the anticipation building, what's going to happen next. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? What all this stuff in Isaiah is about, Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus reads it and says, this is me. This is about me. And people hear in the text, it says they marvel and they're, they're like, wow, who is this? But Jesus says a couple other things and then guess what they want to do? Kill him. This is like the theme of being a prophet or the theme of Jesus' life. That people go, oh, we love you, you're so great. Let's kill him. It's the repeated pattern. Okay. The horse is dead been dead for a long time. A PETA activist has jumped upon its corpse and said, for mercy's sake, it's been dead for 20 minutes. Leave it alone. The point is proven. But here, here's, here's, here's the thing. The Gospels, the New Testament, present Jesus as the solution. The solution to all the problems that are found in the Old Testament. They're presenting him as the solution. But the question is, if he is the solution, what is he the solution and answer for? And in the Old Testament, the plot line is developed, and Jesus is going to defeat the three major enemies of all humanity, Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus, and the work of the gospel, like a trident, will give a death blow to each one of these enemies. The thing is this, though. You have to understand the inner logic of how this is working. In one sense, you can really easily say, oh, Jesus, you know, died on the cross for our sins to, sa to save us from Satan, sin, and death. Now, if you just say that, though, to someone who isn't a Christian, they're going to go, oh, how does someone dying on a cross save you from the devil? How does someone dying on a cross save you from sin? Why, why did he have to die? Why, did he, why couldn't he just die like had his head chopped off? Why did it have to be so painful? There's the, these questions 
and you don't really fully grasp them until you understand the language and the plot line of the Old Testament. And Isaiah is going to be like a massively condensed version of pretty much the entire Bible wrestling with all of these issues. And so you'll see the problems develop. Now I'm going to do something really, really quick. And please just, just track with me because there's going to be questions that you want to ask and things you're wondering, and, and I'm not even going to touch them because i got to go really fast. But I want to see, show you how the, the, the enemies are presented in Scripture, how they arise, and what's the logic behind them. Because when we do this, we'll, better be, we'll be more equipped to read our Bible. So where do Satan, sin, and death first appear? In Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, God creates this wonderful, amazing world that's teeming with life and potential. He puts his image bearers in it, Adam and Eve, and he basically says, look, you were designed to live in perfect harmony with me forever, but he gives them like an escape route, a way out clause. He puts the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in creation. He says, you were designed to live as my image bearers with me for all eternity in perfect harmony, living great. But there's a way that you can get out of this. You can disobey me. You don't have to be in relationship with me. You don't have to serve me. You can choose to be your own God, decide what's right or wrong in your own eyes. And there's this, this way out, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam and Eve are pretty much obeying God. We don't know for how long, but they're obeying God. And then all of a sudden, the story inserts this, this mysterious figure. It's called the serpent. Now, Trust me, uh, if, you're, if you're new to Christianity or you're just checking Christianity out, this is like one of the things that bothers you most, right? It's like, do you, do you really want me to believe that there was a talking snake in a tree that talked to a woman to eat a fruit and that's why everything went bad? In, in, in Christian circles, there's all kinds of different debates about like, like, what exactly is, is going on in Genesis? People want to know how old the earth is from Genesis. There's all these questions that we bring to Genesis. Now, one of the major problems is majority of the questions that we bring to Genesis, Genesis is not concerned with answering. It has different questions and different answers that it's trying to get at. But in order to understand the story, whatever your views are, whether the snake is literal, it's... it's it's just a metaphor for Satan or, or you believe it's absolutely, whatever it is, just trust me on this. In order to understand the working of the story, the inner logic of the story, you need to picture a talking snake. However silly that might sound, you have to picture a talking snake. You must, trust me on this. Because all throughout the Bible, there's not just going to be a serpent. There's going to be sea serpents. There's going to be this thing called Leviathan. And at the end of the Bible, the Bible doesn't tell you to picture a serpent. It tells you to picture what? A dragon. So if you think a talking snake is difficult, wait till Revelation and there's a talking dragon and a beast coming out of the sea. You have to think, you have to picture the things. And then you can debate about what, what you think about them, but you have to picture it in your brain first. One theologian uh, was asked, do you believe in, in the, you know, the, the literal talking snake? And he, he basically says, I'm paraphrasing, uh, it's not important whether there's a literal talking snake there. What's most important is what he said. Okay, you get that? 
So there's a serpent that goes to Eve, and he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In other words, do, do you, did you really hear that? Did God really say that? Is God actually, can you trust him at his, his word? And Eve at first kind of gives a good response. Oh, yeah, God said this and said, but the serpent responds to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, it's this, like, it's this real crafty, sinister thing. Did God really say that? Is God really good? Can you trust him? Maybe God is holding something back from you. He doesn't want you to eat of this because if you do, you will be like God. You will be like him. You will choose what's good and evil. You will be the one who defines what's right and wrong. Now, again, I'm, sm- I'm going fast, but to make a very complex story short and to get to our point today is Adam and Eve eat of the tree, and God comes, and there's this section in the Bible that's called the curse. Now, if you grew up in church, you, you'll know this section as this is the part where Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God. God comes down, and he curses the snake and Adam and Eve. But it, it, it's like... It's, that's not what's, what's going on. And we say that over and over again. I even have this awesome children's Bible that's written by a brilliant theologian. And it says that, you know, and then God cursed Adam and then God cursed Eve. How many of you, if you grew up in church, you know this part is like where, where God curses the serpent and he curses Adam and Eve. God never curses Adam and Eve in this passage. He curses the serpent He gives consequence and punishment to the man and to the woman, but the language of curse is reserved for the serpent. The serpent, and this will be massively important to Isaiah. Although there's earthly enemies of God and human beings sin, there is something behind this. Satan, because it's not just a serpent, it's Satan. Revelation tells us that. The curse is upon the serpent, and Adam and Eve get direct consequence and punishment. And this is what God tells the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." He's going to put enmity, that's, that's hatred, that's strife, that's war, between the offspring of the woman. And you, Remember what I said about picturing things. You've got to picture this. Picture the woman, and she is going to have offspring. And then you're going to picture the serpent, and he's going to have offspring. Now, quick question. Is the offspring of the serpent literal? Are we really looking out for baby snakes? That's precisely not what the author wants you to see. He doesn't want you to picture baby snakes. That's not to say the story of Genesis is not literal. The point is that Genesis is more than literal. It's, it's meta-literal. It's meta-truth. It's telling you historical detail, but in such a way it's revealing more truth to you than you could have ever gotten out of just a mere reporting of historical facts. It's, it's slamming all these things together. So you're not supposed to picture literal, literal baby snakes, offspring, being little devils running around, although some of you probably agree to that truth. Like if the room was filled with baby snakes, you'd go, it doesn't get worse than this. This place is filled with Satan. 
Okay, but do you have those pictures in your head? You have a line of a woman, her offspring, and the line of the serpent. There's team serpent, team snake, those are the bad guys, and team woman, team God, these are the good guys, okay? And the text says that those two lines of people, the offspring, are going to be warring with each other. Incredibly important. The word here for offspring is zera. Remember that. If you have your Bible, circle it. If you can highlight it in your app, your small group curriculum, this is huge, to your understanding of the Old Testament and the New. It's zera, it's seed. There's going to be a seed of a woman. It literally means a seed that you plant in the ground, but also means offspring. It has to do with reproduction. The seed of the woman, her offspring, these people who are on team God, who are going to align themselves with the will of God, are going to be at war with the seeds of the serpent. We're not talking about baby snakes. We're talking about people who align themselves with Satan, enemies of God, and they're going to be at war with one another. What's the story right after this in the Bible? The story of Cain and Abel. What's that the story of? It's the story of one person choosing to be on team serpent and killing the innocent brother. And then what happens after that in the book of Genesis? There's a bunch of genealogies, everyone's favorite part of the Bible, right? What are the genealogies tracing? They're tracing a good line of people who want to serve God for the most part and a bad line. You have this bad line. There's Lamech and these people who kill and they're polygamists and they're murderers. And then you have this good godly line that has people like Noah and Enoch who serve the Lord. And these people are at war with each other. But then it says this. One day, some seed, some part of the offspring of the woman is going to hit the serpent on the head. In doing so, the serpent will, will strike at the heel or the foot of that seed. Pick, you got to picture it in your mind. Someone is going to hit the serpent. It's going to hit the serpent on the head, and in doing so, their foot's going to be injured. By the way, if you get hit on the, the foot, it hurts, you suffer, but you live. But if you want to knock someone out, what's the promise here? One day, God is going to send somebody to knock the serpent out. And he's going to be wounded in that very act. And Genesis will trace the, these lines. Now, here's the problem. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 12, the, like God's looking down upon the earth, and this is the second time he's done this, and it's like, there's no, everyone's team serpent. Everyone's bad guys. Everyone's team serpent. And so God chooses a guy named Abraham to be the righteous line that will bring forth the offspring that will one day destroy the work of the serpent. Verse 12, in Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who blessed you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, after the story of Abraham and Isaac, which we went over two weeks, says more about this promise. Listen, super important here. This is, this is the end and the conclusion that's going to build all the tension for the rest of the series. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. Guess what word this is? Zerah, seed. 
I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, your Zerah seed, singular by the way, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your seed, your Zerah, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham ethnic Israel in the Old Testament is chosen by God to be the holy line by which one day someone will give birth to a righteous seed that will be the serpent slayer, the serpent crusher, the one who knocks the snake out, the dragon slayer of revelation, if you will. He's going to do that. But the massive problem and tension of Isaiah and the Old Testament is When God looks down upon Israel, Isaiah says this, we all, like sheep, have gone astray, every last one of us. No one seeks God, no, not one of us. So how can the righteous seed that destroys the serpent come from a line which is not serving God anymore? That is what Isaiah is wrestling with, and he's going to talk about a seed a righteous seed who will one day become a servant who will somehow, through suffering, defeat evil. This is the inner logic, and it's difficult for modern minds to get around. But trust me, you got to go there if you're going to read your Bibles for all it's worth. So these are the massive questions left over as we enter into this series. Massive questions. Israel, They all, like sheep, have gone astray. They're all sinners. They're all on team serpent. By the way, Paul later says this about all humanity. It's not just Israel. Everyone is on team serpent. No one is good. What's up with the serpent? I told you to picture a serpent, but in other times of the Bible, it's pictured as a sea serpent. Sometimes it's pictured as an ancient creature called Leviathan, and in Revelation, you're supposed to picture a dragon. But the Bible also tells us it's not just a dragon, It's Satan. It's the accuser. Third, humanity has a death problem. In Genesis, there is this massive death problem. We were intended to live with God for all eternity, but we've rebelled and we've chosen to live apart from, and now we're dying. Fourth, Isaiah is going to teach us about the ultimate purpose of humanity, our identity, who we are. In a world and culture that lacks meaning and purpose, Isaiah is going to tell you, if you are a human being, this is your real purpose for being on earth. And lastly, the question of Jesus. How in the world does Jesus suffering on a cross defeat the serpent of old? How does that work? Isaiah is going to weave in and out of those questions, and we're going to be doing that for 12 weeks. Isaiah functions as a mini Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible. Isaiah has 66 chapters, and it kind of has all all the major themes. And so in this series, it's also simultaneously like a massive overview of the Bible. It's a telling of the whole narrative. So out of that, I want to leave you with four challenges. Commit to coming every Sunday. Average church attendance, I've said this before, not to make you feel guilty, but average church attendance by people who are Bible-believing, church-attending members in the country is a little less than once per month. Um, If you only come once per month, you're not going to get the logic of Isaiah. 
There's a purpose to it. You can't, you can't watch Star Wars and see like five minutes and then miss 20 minutes, then five minutes, miss 10 minutes. You've got to understand the whole thing. And then you'll know why we don't like episode one, two, and three. Uh, second, the different chal- another challenge is many of you have got these already. If you haven't, they're, they're in the back as you exit, but it's this little fold-out of Isaiah. On the back is an entire map of the book of Isaiah to kind of walk you through the literary structure of its 66 chapters done by the Bible Project, Tim Mackey. And then on the other side, there's a memory challenge, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, verse 12. We want every single person in the church to memorize this. That's a, a central chapter to the book of Isaiah. Internalize this. Put this word in your heart. Bind it up. Know this chapter. Memorize it. When you memorize it, let me know. Send me an email. I want to know when you guys are doing these things. Commit to memory, memorize it. You've got 12 weeks. Trust me, you're not going to regret it. Also on this, there's a reading plan so that you can get through the entire book of Isaiah uh, by the end of the year, in the next 12 weeks, just some small portions working your way through this. The goal is that all of us are here on Sundays, we are memorizing a big chunk of the book of Isaiah, and we're reading it together in the 12 weeks. And the last challenge is to get in a small group. If you're in a small group, commit to going to it every week. If you're not in one, this is a perfect time. There's people like walking around with little tags that says, I'm a leader. You can talk with them. In the back, there's a table to sign up for small groups. Um, We've done this amazing uh, small group curriculum for the next 12 weeks. That's available in the back. If for some reason you can't get into a small group, go and get one of these and do this on your own and just track with us on a weekly basis. This is going to be huge. I believe the book of Isaiah will be transforming for our church. It's going to be that significant. But we got to do it together, and we got to do it regularly every single week. So pick some of those challenges. If you're a straight-A student, you'll pick all four. If you know that C's get degrees, you'll, you'll pick two. You guys heard that term, C's get degrees? Some institutions, it's B-minuses will get you degrees. I'm actually in a little bit of school, and I'm pulling the C's, get degrees right now. <laughs> Don't tell the professor. Father God, um, we ask you to, to walk with us on this journey. Be with us in this time. Um, I and many of the leaders at this church, we just feel Isaiah is going to be incredibly important for this church. And so we ask you to be with us to teach us, to help us grow in in our knowledge of the Bible, in the language of the Bible, but most importantly, we want to marvel at your son Jesus all the more. We want to see the work of the servant done in the cross more clearly, and we want to be transformed so we could take up the work of servants of, of, of your gospel. And so we love you. We thank you for this book. We thank you for our Bibles. We thank you for this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a wonderful day.